What wonderful gospel promises we just sang, especially in those last two songs. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Grace, 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 greater than all of our sin. What sweet truths to sing this morning together. Well, this morning, along with singing wonderful God-centered worship songs, we'll be continuing in our series through the book of Philippians. Our passage this morning is Philippians 2, 25 through 30, and the memory verses for next week are verses 29 through 30. You can find this text in your pew Bible on page 981, so please do turn to it. Before we read it, I want to share with you the title of the sermon. I don't normally do that. That's not, you know, I often just find the the, the title from the text somewhere, a phrase that I think especially summarizes or captures the the main point of that text and the main point of the sermon. I've done that this week. The the title for this week's sermon is For the Work of Christ. For the Work of Christ. comes directly from verse 30. But I, I toyed with the idea of keeping Justin's sermon title from last week and just calling this Glorifying God in the Mundane, Part 2. Because it's a really good title that he came up with for last week's sermon. And this passage is very similar to last week's passage. Like last week's passage, this one contains details that that don't seem, at first, very relevant to our own lives. So we're tempted to approach this passage like many of us do the book of Leviticus. You just kind of quickly skim through it. But the problem is, once you skim through Leviticus, what's next? Right? Numbers? You just skim through that, and then before you know it, you're just skimming through the whole Bible, right? So, so we, we can't skim through the Bible. Every single passage, is, it's important for us to remember when we come to a passage like Philippians 2, 25 through 30, or the book of Leviticus, that this is the word of the living God. All scripture, like this passage, is breathed out by God. It is from the Holy Spirit, and it contains important truths for us to know, to learn, and to apply so that we might, church, be better able to glorify and to enjoy God. There is much here for you this morning in the text that I'm about to read. God has food for your soul, Christian, in this passage. He has much to say to you and to this church in this passage. So if you would, please... Look at Philippians 2, 25-30 with me. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is God's holy, precious word. May his people hear it. Believe it and obey it. Now let's pray. (coughs) Father, for many of us, it's been a very difficult week. There have been health issues among us in this church, not just this week, but last week, that have carried over into this week and, and may carry over for many days and months to come, years. Father, we want to lift up our brothers and sisters who are struggling with sickness, whether it be a a stomach flu or a head cold or 
or seizures or whatever it might be, Father, we're burdened for them, we love them, we care for them, from the littlest little babies to the ones that are nearing their return to you, Father, as you take them from this life and bring them to you. We lift them up to you, Father, and may they be encouraged by your word and by our words of encouragement to them. May we point them and their families to Jesus as they face these difficulties. Lord, we do at the same time recognize that for some this week has been a wonderful week and we praise you for it. We ask, Lord, that wherever our hearts are at this morning, that you would tune them to your heart. That as we look at this text and see how it applies to our lives and we seek to understand and, and enjoy the gospel afresh this morning, that you'd be at work mightily in our hearts. That those who are in this place who are lost and dead in sin would see the light of Jesus Christ and be changed. That they would worship the one that they were made for, the one that they exist to worship and enjoy now and forever for. Father, we pray that you would encourage the weak in heart, the low in faith, that you would bless your people, feed them by your word, all for your glory and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Philippians 2, 19 through 24, so last week's passage, Paul explained why at that time he would not be sending Timothy to the church in Philippi. In this morning's passage, Paul proceeds to explain why he would be sending Epaphroditus to the Philippians instead. The Philippian church was expecting Timothy to come and visit them. They would have been very excited. They would have been looking forward to his visit. Think of all the great stories that a man like Timothy could share with a church like the church in Philippi. This man that Paul describes as his right-hand man, a, a true child in the faith who Paul has walked alongside of, who has preached the gospels in city after city. He, this man had a collection of stories to tell about amazing conversions, people who were, were Gentiles and Jews who had trusted in Jesus and now were worshiping Jesus in other churches like the church in Philippi. Oh, how sweet and how encouraging and how wonderful it would have been for a church like Philippi to receive a visit from Timothy. Timothy could have preached the gospel to them. He could have helped them strengthen their understanding of God's truth, of doctrine. And in a precious little church in the first century, the early church history, if you know anything about it, it was full of heresy, just like so many churches are full of today. The church was struggling. They were in need of great teaching. There were not MP3s. There was no live streaming. The word of God was being written by the Spirit through people like Paul. And Timothy knew Paul, he served alongside. He was his child in the faith. So yes, it would have been wonderful for a church like the church in Philippi to receive a visit from Timothy. But Paul needed Timothy to stay and help him while he was under house arrest in Rome. So instead of sending Timothy, the Philippians would be getting Epaphroditus back. I say back because Epaphroditus had been sent to Paul by the Philippian church. He was, to he was to provide help and encouragement to Paul and deliver a, a financial gift, an offering that they had collected to partner with Paul in the gospel, which he already referred to, he alluded to earlier in chapter 1, and he's going to talk about again and again throughout the rest of the book, especially in chapter 4. This collection is something that Paul mentions at the end of chapter 4 in his closing when he says in verse 18 of Philippians 4, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
having expected to receive a visit from Timothy, but getting Epaphroditus back instead would have been similar to something like this. You hearing that this Sunday, you hearing this Sunday that next Sunday some great and gifted, well-known preacher would be coming to preach the sermon next Sunday. Someone like John Piper or D.A. Carson or R.C. Sproul would be here to preach God's word next Sunday you'd be rightly looking forward to their visit, to hearing them preach God's word. But if you came next Sunday morning and instead of them walking up to the, one of them walking up to the pulpit, you saw me, you know, put my my little headset back on, you know, big ears flopping around this thing, moving around clumsily, maybe even tripping to the pulpit and saying, there's been a change in plans, brothers and sisters. I'll be preaching this sermon this morning. It would have been hard, (laughs) Even the most godly ones of you who have been shaped and encouraged by these, these men of God who are gifted teachers, I think would be a little bit bummed. You're looking forward, you're expecting to hear Don Carson marvelous, marvelously unpack God's word and show how it all points to Jesus. You know, Take us to Melchizedek and say, look at this Melchizedek in the Old Testament. He is a forerunner to Jesus and you would have been so encouraged by it. You're looking forward to hearing a man like R.C. Sproul preach who has such godly wisdom and biblical insight that he's able to make some of the most difficult truths clear and simple and precious. You were excited to hear in person the passionate, bold, Christ-centered preaching of a man like John Piper, but instead you're getting me, more of me. Now some of you wouldn't just be a little bummed. I know you'd be, oh, it's all about Jesus, right? Yes, but God has gifted some men in unique ways to be a blessing to, to the universal church like these guys. So some of you wouldn't just be slightly bummed, you'd be frustrated, maybe even upset, complain, grumble. I might hear some moans among the congregation. Maybe some of you that are less mature and holy would even just get up and walk out and listen to one of those podcasts on your way home. Drive around a little bit, worship the Lord that way. Don't do that. It's not going to happen. This is not, you know, next week I'm not telling you one of those guys is coming. But it's into this type of situation that Paul writes this portion of Philippians, providing the church in Philippi with an explanation for for his decision to keep Timothy and send them Epaphroditus. An explanation that can teach us helpful truths that are very much relevant and applicable to our lives and to this local church. I think you'll see there's so much here for you and I. In Paul's explanation of why he was sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi, we're reminded that Christians are to be concerned with relationships. To say it in a bolder way, what Paul writes here reminds us that Christians get into one another's relational business. We get into one another's relational business. This doesn't mean that we are to be snoopers who meddle, that we need to know every little detail about every single person in the church, or that we should gossip. Now, that's all just sin. What I mean by Christians get into one another's relational business is that we are to care deeply, not only about the relationships that that we have with someone, but the relationships that that person has with other people, especially in the church. So it's not just this kind of, this V thing where it's like, if I'm good with so-and-so and I'm good with so-and-so, it doesn't matter if they're not good with one another. That's not the picture that we have in Scripture, and that's not what we get from this passage in Scripture. We are to care deeply about relationships. 
In this passage, Paul is not just giving an explanation for his plans. He's showing great concern for other people's relationships. He's good with Epaphroditus. He's good with the Philippian church. But he wants it to be good between the two of them. And there was a real possibility that the Philippian church would be disappointed by, even upset with Epaphroditus. And not just because they were expecting Timothy, but because Epaphroditus' return could have been perceived by them as a failure. If we were to send a man who was a leader from our church to provide support and encouragement to, say, the Creech family, who are some of the missionaries that we have sent out and are now serving in in preparing for tribal missions in Senegal, Africa, if we were to send this man and, and, and the plan was for him to stay with them for a year, to provide this gospel encouragement and ministry and, and serve the creatures and, and help them. But then a month later, this person came back. Well, we would have questions and concerns. Had this man failed? Did the creatures send him home because there had been some sin issue in his life? Should this man continue to be seen and viewed as a leader in the church? Maybe he was on an elder track and all of a sudden, you know, the going gets tough. Does he just give up? Well, these questions, if left unanswered, would affect relationships and cause division within the church. Some would say, hey, it's water under the bridge. Just let it go. That happened in Africa. What happens in Africa stays in Africa, all right? Just just let it go. Water under the bridge. Cross-cultural missions is hard. Just, just don't worry about it. Others would have said, well, you know, yeah, we want to extend him grace, but, but maybe he's not called to be in ministry. Could be a problem in the church. But if we were to, to get a letter, you know, really, you know, nowadays it'd be Skype. That's what we did on Friday with the creatures to kind of get a, an update on where they were going and, and thinking and how God was leading them. If we were to Skype with the creatures and they told us that this man had, had been a great blessing to them, a, a hard worker for, for the gospel, that he was faithful to Christ and had been used by God to refresh and encourage the creatures, even though he had only been there for a month. And while he was in Senegal, we were to hear that, that because of some health issues, they, they prayed and they asked God for direction and they all agreed that it would be best to send him home. Well, this information would be very helpful. It would cause us to honor this man and rejoice in his return, even if he wasn't a piper or a Carson or a Sproul or a Keller. So you see, in this seemingly irrelevant passage, Paul lovingly takes the time to make sure that when Epaphroditus returns to Philippi, the Philippians would know that Epaphroditus had not failed them or Paul or the Lord. Paul wants to make sure that Epaphroditus and the others in the church are together for the gospel. That there's no division among them. So, so Paul gets involved in their relational business. He's all up in their relationship. And the way that he does it he, is he guards Epaphroditus' reputation. Paul cares deeply about relationships, especially relationships between other Christians, and so should you and I. This is one of the implications of the gospel. In Christ, God is reconciling all who turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ to himself, but also to one another. There's no longer division between brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the same family, and we're a family that is to get along. I mean, you, maybe you grew up with one of those dads that was like, just, just stop it, just get along, hug, hug each other. Maybe that's more mom. Just give each other a hug and a kiss and, and, and just love each other. Well, in a, in a much deeper, stronger way, God wants us to do the same. 
There's some holy kiss stuff in scripture. I don't think that that, I think that was, you know, that was culturally a thing going on. So I'm not encouraging you all to holy kiss each other and all that stuff, all right? But, but I am encouraging you to, to think about your brothers and sisters as that. Your brothers and sisters who you have been reconciled to by the cross. Through the sin-atoning death of Jesus, who died to pay our sin debt, the relationship between us and God and between us and one another can be restored. Addressing this very same gospel reality, but as it relates to Jews and Gentiles, Paul writes this in Ephesians 2. After that, verses 1 through 10, which are such a a wonderful picture of, of the gospel, a great gospel explanation, then Paul goes into the implication of the gospel. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The world says, mind your own business. If we're good, I'm not worried about you and other people. But God says your brothers and sisters in Christ are your business. If you can help bring unity where there is disunity, if you can lovingly and helpfully speak into a situation, well, you should. If you can guard someone's reputation when another Christian is throwing them under the bus, then you guard it. See, as we care for and about others' relationships, we show non-believers that the gospel changes the way that we live, the way that we view people and treat people. It says to a selfish world that it's not all about us. It's all about Christ being magnified. And you know what? Healthy, God-honoring, Christ-centered relationships in the church, well, they honor the Lord Jesus Christ. As we extend grace to one another and we protect each other's name, well, that honor... That, that thing that we do for one another points back to the Lord who saved us and, and gave up his life to reconcile us to God the Father and to one another. So what prevents you, what prevents me often from getting into one another's relational business like Paul does in this passage? What needs to be confronted in our own hearts if we're going to get involved in one another's business like this? Well, I think it's most likely one of these three things. The first is pride. See, if we get involved in others' relational business, other people might want to get involved in our relational business. But if we keep to ourselves, if we stay surface level in discussions, and when someone says something that reveals that they may have a relationship problem, rather than ask them a follow-up question, pray with them, encourage them, point them to Scripture, have them consider their own part, ask them Where is your sin? Is there sin on your part in this situation? Ask them where their heart is towards the person. Well, instead, we keep our mouths shut or we give them some standard cliche answer. Just think positive thoughts. Just keep on being you. Just, yeah. Just You be you. Don't worry about them. So that, ultimately, we can protect ourselves that other people won't know that we have some struggles in some relationships as well. It's so self-centered. It's so, it's, it's so much about us when we do that. Another reason somebody won't get involved in others' relational business, fear of man. They might tell you to get lost. 
They might say that you don't understand, that, that you're wrong for telling them to remember the gospel. Oh, remember the gospel. Oh, yeah. Well, you don't know the pain that I'm feeling, the, the frustration, the anger in my heart. We're telling them to seek to honor Jesus by going to that person and seeking to work through the relationship problem for his glory. Well, they might get angry. So rather than fear God and obey his word, you shrink back and you let them do what they feel like doing rather than what God's word is calling that brother or sister to do. It doesn't mean that every relationship is going to end with this happy story. Even among Christians, there's cases where we need to have some relational distance, but we can still love and honor one another. But when we're more afraid of man than we are of God, we, we won't step out, put ourselves out there. And a last one, and this kind of really is behind all of them, lack of love. It takes effort and it's hard to help people work through relational conflict. It gets messy. It's risky. It will cost you time and energy. And I found that energy is, is more valuable than money. You only have this limited amount of emotional energy. And if, if you just pour it all out into other people, well, you can often just feel just tired and burnt out. And you're more tempted to sin and to snap on people that, that you love and, and care about that you're, you're really close with. And so rather than, than pour yourself out and love somebody who's going through a hard time in, in relationships with other people, other Christians, well, you stay focused on yourself. So you really have to love God and other Christians to be willing to get involved in the relational business. It's, it's really a loving thing to do. Now, obviously, there's wisdom in this from how you do that, how you approach it, how you listen and ask questions and you think and you, before you open your mouth, especially when there's a really sensitive issue, you're praying. You're not, they're often going to be led by their emotions in these situations. And what do you need to be led by? The Word and the Spirit. So you've got to be reading your Bible. You've got to be you know, talking to brothers and sisters and all of a sudden certain passages and chapters of the Bible are coming to mind and you're, you're, they're talking and they're getting angry and as you do that, you pull out your Bible or more likely your smartphone and you, and you bring out the Bible on your smartphone. You say, but look at what God's Word says. But, but look, because they're caught up in, the, in, in their, their, their own heart, in their own selves, and they're not thinking about Jesus in that moment and God has put you in their life to point them back. So these things, whether it be pride, fear of man, lack of love, whatever it might be, must not keep us from caring about others' relationships. And they must not keep us from allowing other Christians who love us speak into our lives when we have relationship issues with other people. It's not just about us speaking into other people's relationship conflicts, but allowing other people to speak into ours. They could be wrong. It's possible. But you can receive what they're saying, consider it, talk through it in a loving way. The reality is that in order to help those in the church who are struggling with difficult relationships, whether it be a wife or a husband who are struggling in their marriage, a child who is struggling to obey their parents, or two Christians who have had a falling out, you will need to be involved already in people's lives. If you just come on Sunday mornings, maybe you come in late, you always miss the announcements. I know some of you miss the announcements every week because you're fellowshipping in the comments. That's great. That's, that's a, you know, okay. You know. But then you don't get to hear these things. And then you're like, well, I didn't hear about that. Well, you, we said it, but you were out there. All right, but, but others of you just come in late just because you want to come in late. And then you leave early. Last song, before the benediction, I, I give this parting blessing to, to the church and you, you're making your way out. You're packing up. 
If you're in that mindset, well, well, you're not really committed to community, and you won't know people, and people won't be likely to share their relationship struggles with you. So Christian, slow down and make time for other Christians in your life. We live in a very fast-paced culture. Go, go, go. Social media telling us you got to feel excited and go crazy, all this stuff. And we're comparing ourselves to all these other people when, when the tone of Scripture is very different. Oh, yes, there's action. There's excitement. But, but there's so much of this consistent, as, as Justin called it last week, mundane, just the, the regular life of a Christian. And it needs, to, it needs to be that you've made it a priority to... to Set apart time for other Christians in your life. To fold them into your family. It can be hard. I don't always want to fold people into my family when my kids are in an especially rebellious season of life. You know, I go through you know, difficult seasons too, but when they're especially rebellious and we're, we're like, man, do I really want somebody to walk into this house with these kids like this and then say, you're a pastor? <laughs> what? Yes, because my sinners, just like your, your my sinners, <laughs> my children, <laughs> my children are sinners just like your children. And I love them, and I seek so hard to just bring the gospel to these situations of their, their re- re- rebelling against us and ultimately rebelling against their, their parents. And so, <laughs> though we just had a newborn, we're already thinking and struggling with how do we start to fold people back into our lives? We've, you know, we've, we've kind of taken this time to, to get back into routine and, and care for one another and love the boys, and, but, but we need to fold people back into our family. Have them over for dinner. Open up our lives. So, yeah, they'll see me really struggle with anger when my kids are disobeying. When I have this, I'm, I'm, I'm in Ephesians 2, and I'm trying to dig into the gospel, and here this kid's throwing a Lego across the room like, yeah, that's hard. And yet they need to see me struggle with that and hopefully respond in such a way that teaches them how to respond to their own kids' disobedience. So much of discipleship happens like this. And if you don't make time for other Christians, you're not a part of discipleship. You're not a part of community. You're not doing what God has called you to do and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about it all the time, but one of the easiest and best ways to do this, to build fellowship and, and, and have stronger, closer relationships with others in the church, in this church, is community groups. You get together. You, you don't just go through each point of the sermon. You, you apply that passage to your lives in community, and you encourage each other, and you hold each other accountable. And it's crazy. As you do that, things come up. Struggles come up. And then you have opportunities outside of that time to meet and to talk and to pray. You can join the men's or the women's study on Wednesday nights. Have people over for dinner, meet up for coffee, and read the Bible. As you talk and listen, as the Word of God and the Spirit of God work in the people of God, relationship issues will come out. You only need to be praying, opening God's Word, listening and asking good questions. What Paul writes here, church, reminds us that caring about other Christians' relationships is part of being a Christian. It's part of being a healthy local church. So it's not really optional. If, you, if you're really going to love people, love other Christians, you, you, you're going to get involved in their relational business. Well, what Paul writes about Epaphroditus also reminds us of the importance of affirming and encouraging others. Look at how Paul describes Epaphroditus in verse 25. He calls him, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. 
Paul is saying, Philippians, this Epaphroditus who has returned to you is like one of my family members. He has been an important co-laborer with me in gospel ministry. He's been a spiritual warrior who has fought hard in service to Christ. These are powerful, deep descriptions that push Epaphroditus forward, commending him to the Philippians. Look at him. Be like him. Imitate this man. Philippians. Paul then goes on to say in verse 25 that Epaphroditus had had ministered to his need. This reminds us that even great men of God, people that we look to as heroes of the Christian faith, people like Paul relied on other believers for support and encouragement. Clearly, Epaphroditus was not a failure. The apostle had been blessed by the messenger that the Philippians had sent him. Because of Epaphroditus, his labors... Paul was in a better place. The man standing before them was not Timothy, but he had served Paul well. Though he had gotten ill, he had nearly died, he had remained committed and faithful to Christ. Epaphroditus, he hadn't just delivered a package from Philippi to Rome. He was a mailman for Jesus Christ. That's what he was. His service provided refreshment to Paul's soul. And Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians knew that reality and responded rightly to his return. So he tells them in verse 29, if they haven't figured out what to do with Epaphroditus' return yet, he tells them what to do in verse 29. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor him. In other words, his return was reason to celebrate. Give the man a hug, smile at him, turn that frown upside down, throw a party in his honor, have him over for dinner, Hear his stories about how God had mercifully saved his life and praise God for how he had worked through this servant. Church, this is a model for how we as a church should respond when our missionaries come on furlough, when they come and visit, even when it's unexpected. We thought you were coming back in six months. All of a sudden, you're here? Come over. Welcome. You can stay at my house. You can come over for dinner. I want to hear some stories about how God is working in your life. Let me tell you some stories about how God is working in my life and in this church. Paul's letter would have been read aloud to the entire church. Epaphroditus would have been there when these words were spoken to his church. Now, we don't know how Paul's words, in, how Paul, how Paul's words were used by God in his life. Epaphroditus' life, how these words might have helped fuel his commitment to serve Christ. But if you have ever been affirmed, encouraged, and commended to others, what does that do in your own heart? How did God use that to help solidify you? When someone says to others, this man, this woman has done a good job. They are faithful to God. They, They are to be trusted with more responsibilities in the church. They have glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. What what happens in your own heart? Well, it builds you up. It strengthens your bones, keeps your knees from failing. Or maybe it brings them down so that you would pray and cry out to God and thank him for how he's working in your life. It helps you to keep moving when you question whether you're making a difference at all for Christ. Sadly, so often, We Christians don't affirm, encourage, or commend other Christians when we should, or we don't do it enough. Again, I think it's because of those same reasons. Pride, fear of man, lack of love. We're we're, we're focused too much on ourselves. 
But when we do this, it is one of the great ways that God guides, strengthens, and leads his servants. And I speak on this from my own experience. I am a pastor today, in large part, because God used other Christians who I looked up to, who I viewed as godly and, and knowledgeable, who, who had spoken into my life and said, keep on teaching the Bible. Yeah, you, you got plenty of room to grow, but I see God at work in your life, and, and I think you need to pursue pastoral ministry. I didn't see it. I, I thought, you know, gym teacher— Coach sports teams make a, an impact in, in, in the public schools, which is great. That's the track that I was thinking. That's where I was going. I love sports. You know, using sports to glorify God. Awesome. That's where I was going. And yet people in the church kept on saying different things to me that caused me to stop and think, well, am I going the way that I want <laughs> or the way that God really wants me to go, which is really where I want to go? And so people over and over again, you know, intentionally, purposefully said things to me that, that I didn't see in myself. Some of you who said these things are in this, this room right now. Some of those who said those things are in this room right now. I am a pastor because God affirmed this calling through his church. God so often uses the affirmations, encouragements, and commending of other Christians to guide his people. If you are actively serving Christ, whether it be in an official position like an elder a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a greeter, or kitchen crew, or an unofficial position in which you are meeting with someone to read and study scripture, discipling someone, mentoring them, serving others in order to glorify Christ. Somewhere along the way, it's likely that somebody kind of nudged you along that path, affirmed you, and said, yeah, keep on going, sister. This is good. You're a gifted teacher. You got to be discipling women. Why are you not meeting with other women to teach them? You have a gift in teaching. You know the scriptures. You're committed to the gospel. Go, sister. Brother, you, you are so encouraging. You need to meet with young men who are discouraged and encourage them with the gospel. Church, if we grab hold of this reality that this is one of the great ways that we can serve the Lord and love our brothers and sisters, oh, it would fuel, it would fuel so many things. I don't think we would have a problem getting greeters and ushers and baristas, as I call them, in the kitchen to serve on Sunday mornings. Man, when you smile at me when I walk through the commons, man, I'm excited to walk in that sanctuary and worship the Lord with my brothers and sisters. When we, I mean, just that, these little comments that, that are not made up, they're not, they're not from nothing. We're not just looking for fake reasons to encourage and, and affirm and commend people, but they're there. Man, this person spurs me on to follow Christ. Tell them! When's the last time you did that? Or is it all about you? You're just waiting for other people to encourage you. Will you step out and you start encouraging and affirming? Start that culture even more. It's here, but we can, we can fan that flame in this church. We need to, church. It will honor the Lord, and it will make this church a much enjoyable church to be a part of. Worldly affirmation and encouragement is cheap. It's surface level. It's, it's easy. It says you're beautiful, you're sweet, you're cool, you're awesome. It says you be you because I like you. But real Christian affirmation and encouragement is God-centered. It points out how God is at work in other people's lives for his glory. It affirms the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It commends sanctification. It affirms holiness. I see you, brother, over there fighting that sin. I love it. I love it. You keep on fighting that sin. You, you throw your computer out of the window. 
You did already? I'm thinking about doing the same with mine. That, that type of conversation should happen in the church. I've told my kids, I, I, I sometimes just want to pick the TV up off the wall and smash it. I don't know how good that would do, you know, in, in, our, in our home. There's good things to watch. I'm not one of those just, you know, monk-type Protestants, just, you know, dig a hole and live there and keep yourself away from the world. No, no, but, but, but you get the feel here. Commend those who are fighting sin. Point them to Jesus. Encourage them. Tell them they're doing what God has called them to do. And when Christians do this, oh, it's beautiful. In the flesh, we're so concerned with making ourselves look great. But in Christ, in the church, we're to be concerned with making Christ look great. And one of the ways that we do that is by affirming, commending, and encouraging those whom God is at work in his church. So do that. Look for opportunities to encourage and affirm God's servants. Well, lastly, we are reminded in this passage. Again, there's so much. All right? This is not some mundane passage, is it? Lastly, we are reminded in this passage that Christians take risks for Christ because Jesus is worth it. Verse 27 says that Epaphroditus' illness was so severe that he was near to death. In verse 30, Paul tells us that Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete the task that he had been given by the church to serve Paul, which served Christ. He's, he's living for Jesus. He's taking risks. I'm going to make that long trip from Philippi to Rome and my life is going to be on the line because Jesus is worth it, says Epaphroditus. But what, what if he would have died? What if he would have died? Would, would his work have been worth it? This reminds me of the story of Jim Elliott, which many of you know, a, a missionary, a, a, a well-known missionary, though there are many missionaries who have died and, and, and we don't know their names. Philip James Jim Elliott lived from 1927 to 1956. He died at the age of 29. Jim trusted in Christ at the age of six. And then from that point on, he had this abiding passion for missions, desiring to serve Christ by sharing the gospel with unreached people. Oh, that encourages parents' hearts. Even the parents that have older kids, right? Oh, they can get saved at six. Well, after attending Wycliffe Bible Translator School, Jim began working among the Indians of Ecuador. Then in 1953, Jim married another Wycliffe missionary named Elizabeth, who's quite well known, who just passed away a few years ago. And they continued his work in Ecuador together. In 1955, a missionary friend from Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which we're very familiar with, spotted a, a tiny Indian settlement in the jungle. The, and I'm going to say the name wrong, the Horani tribe, were unreached people known especially for their reclusiveness and for their veracity for being a very intense and warlike people. Elliot and four other missionaries began to establish friendly contact with the tribe. After a three-month process, they finally established a face-to-face -face contact in early 1956, the year that Jim would die. While the initial meetings were friendly, something went wrong in one of the meetings, and on January 8th, Jim, along with the other four missionaries, were speared to death by the Indians. His death left Elizabeth without her husband and Jim's 10-month-old daughter without her father. Was it worth it? Jim's journal entry from October 28, 1949, so seven years earlier, gives us an answer, Jim's answer, expressing his belief that risking his life for Jesus was more important than, risking, than living a life risk-free for himself. Jim wrote this, 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, Christ, having gone to the cross to give up his life to save us from hell and bring us to God, Christ, who is not only our Savior but our Lord, which means now we serve him, Jesus, who our heart delights in more than anyone or anything else, who has become our greatest treasure and joy, oh, yes, he is worth it, believer, whatever risk we take. We exist now for him. Life is no longer about us building our puny little earthly kingdoms that will fade and perish. It's about us being used by God to advance his great, eternal, and glorious kingdom. It's about making much of Christ with our lives. And when we take risks for Christ, it displays to the world the worthiness of Christ. How do you show that something is valuable to you? You risk it all for it. You give it all up for Jesus. And you show how worthy he is to the world. That they should trust in him. They should pursue him. That they need to know him well. It says Jesus is worth the risk, whatever the cost. Jesus is that precious, that magnificent, that glorious. The name Epaphroditus means belonging to Aphrodite. Belonging to Aphrodite. This means that Epaphroditus was named after the pagan goddess of sex, whose worship was often linked to prostitution and sexual immorality. Think about it. Every single time Epaphroditus would hear his name, he would have been reminded that whoever named him believed that he belonged to this false goddess, that he belonged to this one. But when Epaphroditus believed the gospel, he no longer belonged to a false goddess. He belonged to Jesus Christ, the Lord of life who had paid for his sin, ransomed his soul, and brought him out of hopeless idolatry and into the joy of fellowship with the one true triune living God. The false idol that he was named after no longer had claim on him. His name now should have been something like Epaphro Jesus, right there. When we risk for Christ, we show others the worthiness of Christ. And that's what Epaphroditus did. You need somebody to go, I'll go. You need somebody to deliver that package to Paul. Whatever it is, I will go because Jesus is worth it. Why get involved in one another's relational business when it can cost you? It might affect your relationships with other Christians. Why affirm and encourage other Christians? Because Jesus is worth it. Because living for Jesus and serving others makes much of Christ. And that's what you long to do, Christian. That's what you long to do now with the new heart. You've been born again. What's your desire? To make much of Christ. To enjoy Jesus. To serve him with your life. And it's not going to mean for most of us that we go to, into tribal missions. It's going to mean that we lay our lives down practically in so many different ways in the church and in our communities and in our families. Some causes are not worth risking your life for, but Jesus is not one of those causes. He is the cause to risk everything for. Let's pray for God's help to do that, church. Heavenly Father, we ask that you drive the gospel deeper and deeper into our hearts, that we would never set it aside, whether it be in relationship conflicts, whether it be in career decisions, whether it be in, in how we interact with other people, how we approach the world, how we vote, how we think about our neighbors. Father, if the gospel is driven deeper and deeper into our hearts and it is the reality that we live in light of, Father, we will do these things gladly, joyously. They will become more natural to us. And so, Father, we pray that you would do just that. Drive the truth home deeper into our hearts. 
that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior, that we exist to make much of him. Help us, Father, to do these things for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.